It's Monday, August 6th, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 171 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and um, another musician. Today, that musician is composer, saxophonist, professor, arts administrator, James Fay. Before we get into it, uh, a couple of orders of business. I want to say thanks to everyone who came out to Arate this past week. Uh, the concert with Zena and Don Casper was was nothing short of spectacular. Uh, the audience was great. The conversation afterwards was great. And I, I, I hope we continue to do them. I'll be putting that conversation up next week. August 15th, we'll be doing it again. 5049 at Arate. Ben Goldberg, the great clarinetist, who, you know, uh, if people ask me which episodes of this podcast, you know, are the ones that I like the most, my all-time favorite episode of, of this show was episode 49, back from 2014, uh, when it was Ben and I. Ben is an incredible musician. He'll be doing a solo concert, which is a pretty rare treat. Uh, and then after the concert, Ben and I will be talking. I would strongly suggest that you come out for this. August 15th at Arate. Uh, it's 8 p.m., 20 bucks at the door, live music, a drink, and uh, a talk between the two of us. Go to the website to check it out. I also want to let you know that just two days later, August 17th, the official release date for my new solo record, Decay of the Angel. Haven't talked about it on here in a while. Uh, if you didn't uh, pre-order it through the Kickstarter, please go to the 5049 website. You can order it there. Uh, it'll ship, you know, on or around August 17th. Uh, I'm really proud of it. I think it's actually the best thing I've ever done. Um, so if you're so inclined, check it out. Today on the show, James Fay. James is an original one. He lives in San Francisco. He's been there for the past 12 years. Uh, before that, he was here in New York for, for several years. And before that, he uh, is originally from Taipei. James originally moved to the United States to study electrical engineering at Princeton. And somehow during the course of those studies, uh, experimental music found its way to him, I would say. And since that time, the early 90s, uh, James has created a body of work and an outlook that is entirely his own. Concurrent with his studies at Princeton, he began to take very seriously and study 20th century music. And he was able to work closely with people like Milton Babbitt and Anthony Braxton. James has a musical path that uh, is pretty unique, and I really enjoyed talking with him and learning about it. In addition to his work as a, as a composer and saxophonist, he's incredibly active as an electronic musician. In fact, he teaches it at Mills College in Oakland. He's been there for the past 12 years. As an administrator, he works for the Anthony Braxton organization, the Tricentric Foundation. He's a busy guy, and he does a lot of incredible things. I would strongly urge you to check out James's whole world because it's a fascinating one. Go to jamesfay.com. That's J-A-M-E-S-F-E-I.com. jamesfay.com. He's a busy and fascinating cat. Great music. If you're enjoying this show, uh, maybe consider becoming a Patreon donor. Patreon.com slash 5049podcast. That's it. Hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with James Fay. Hey. 
is that there is literally like actually not space in it. Yeah, that's why the emerging markets become such a disaster. Well, it is, you know, but it, it is. But compared to here, I feel like it's still much better. Like what you actually get. Yeah, what you what you actually get, and also, it's not like. It's you know it's not like where like you can't afford Bushwick, right. you know what I mean? <laughs> right. That's like saying like I can't afford to live in San Leandro. You know, it's like okay, it's a twenty-five minute drive. Uh huh. But it's like yeah, that's not the end of the world, you know. But here it's like you can't afford Bushwick, and and, and like what are you gonna do, you know? Well, and also you know Bushwick is objectively disgusting. <laughs> I, I'm not okay with Bushwick. Are you? <laughs> you you didn't live in Bushwick when you no, were in New York? No, no, it's it sucks. No, I haven't been. So, but it, you know, it's 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 difficult. It's gotten worse, and it's getting worse, and it's going to get worse. That seems to be so. like the story everywhere. Yeah. Did you? I didn't realize until when you said it a second ago that you've been in the Bay Area for twelve years already. Yeah. It's been that long. Yeah. Yeah, it's been twelve years. You left New York to go work at Mills. Yeah. And you started as, like, uh, what was the the role that you started in? I, I started as a visiting professor for three years, and then I went into tenure track. And yeah, yeah, and and has the time like flown by? Or? Oh yeah, <laughs> that's how it goes. How long were you in New York before you went out there? Like seven years, I think. It's yeah. not that long. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it's a while, but it's not yeah. that long. Yeah, you stayed active while you were here. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize you were actually from Taiwan. Yeah, I grew up in Taiwan. Came here for college. Yeah, Wesleyan. Uh, no, I was at Princeton. Really? Yeah. Studying what? Electrical engineering. Really? <laughs> so wait, you came from Taiwan to the United States as a college student. Yep. I, uh, and and what was the trajectory at Princeton as an electrical engineering student? Well, I was specializing in computer. There there are a couple branches. I don't know. This is something you want to talk about? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 my emphasis was computer engineering, which is uh, the hardware side. So it's computer architecture. This is what year? This is 92 to 96. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So it was, you know, it was designing computer hardware. Basically, you know, arch- architecture is, if you think about it, it's like the chip uh-huh. and the architecture of the chip and designing computer chips and things like that. Um, so that was college. <laughs> it's a little different than what I do now. Right, right, right. But was there, was there a concurrent uh, interest and in active life with music? Well, you know, I actually started late in music, so I didn't really get into music until maybe my, you know, I liked music, you know, I listened to music, but I didn't really get into kind of making music until probably my third year in college. Really? Um, yeah. Even as a kid, you didn't play violin, piano? Nothing, in, you know, I had piano lessons like any good Asian kid, um, <laughs> and um, I wasn't particularly good at it or <laughs> interested in it. Um and so it wasn't really a thing. Um, and I got interested in music in my third year in college, probably really getting starting to get seriously interested in it. I in mean, I never academic thought... Academic music? Um, you know, in the beginning, I was saying no. Um, it's interesting. I mean, you know, the, the thing that got me interested in new music was I got interested in Frank Zappa. Yeah. Um, especially the first, the early iteration of The Mothers. And... So I don't know if you know those records. You know? I mean, I I'm familiar with 
contextually where they yeah. fit in. But I mean, so you know, like the music. records like Uncle Mead, yeah. you know, Weasels Rip My Flesh, Burnt Weenie Sandwich. It's some very unusual music. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think what was really interesting about it was particularly that group, you know, or that, you know, it was at that point it was kind of a, uh, they were kind of shifting membership, was that you had this very, you had elements that were very basic rock and roll. You have kind of, you know, his kind of contemporary music, Boulezian, Varesian kind of compositional things. Mm -hmm. And then you have kind of noisy improv, scronky saxophone stuff. And all the tape editing he was doing, mm -hmm. right? Especially on, on the kind of records that he put out when the mothers disbanded. So to me, that was a amazing. It was just strange listening to this music, you know, and it, trying it, to understand it, it. It appeared to you just as strange, or were you all, were you actually picking apart that there were these different? Oh yeah, I mean they're they're quite clear. They tend yeah. to be cut up, but they would you know on the same record you would go from a like a little composed, you know, piano piece into this weird kind of performance live thing where they're they're making synchronized vocal noises, and then mm -hmm. there will be an organ thing, and then there will be just solid noise it like kind of the, forces you to stop and listen to what's going yeah, on yeah you can kind of see how it's made you can hear the cuts but it's the combination that was really interesting and so you know and zappa was always talking about verez so my first kind of contemporary music record was the verez box set or not this is twofer because there's, there's not enough record not for, a, for a box set there's the twofer on columbia you know with robert Kraft, and i think i got interested or acquired my you know initial knowledge of new music like we would for like pop music or uh -huh. jazz you buy records you know and you read the record sleeve and you, you follow the... you follow it and then you would buy like records that were performed by the same people you yeah know? so i would find some other 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 records you know i think i got you know robert Kraft's like you know version of zeitmas and marto you know and i think the second record I got was also Robert Kraft. No, that one was the, the other one wasn't Robert Kraft. It was the Webern box set that Boulez did. Um, and then it can, you kind of go from there. You go, oh, this is interesting. You know, yeah. what are music like this? Kind of like you know, if you, you listen to jazz, you would listen to Miles Quartet and go, you know, oh, what's what are these? Cultures? What else does Herbie Hancock what, do? Yeah, what else? Yeah. You know, what are things? Oh, oh, I don't like this. You know, then you mm -hmm. go find like what are the Wayne Shorter Blue Note records or you know. Who's this Coltrane person? And, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. so in that same way, um, so I think you know that was exciting, and you know, um, and it was kind of you know it was pre-internet, so you you would kind of just study the records, you would find out, try to read about, you would go to the library, you would read about Webern, and then you would get your Berg records, you would, and you would get your Schoenberg. Sort of understanding where these guys fit in. Yeah, you in start piecing it together, but in in this kind of almost kind of this this record, you know, music fan kind of way and not so much that you know it's like oh i need to understand um the the trajectory of 12-tone music and mm -hmm. i need to see like okay i'm going to listen to the pre-12-tone schoenberg pieces and listen to you know and analyze opus 33 you know it's, it's 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 it was more just like oh i like this record let me get find some other records related to this record mm -hmm. that i like were you also going forward i mean you're going backwards to webern and berg but were you going towards stuff that came after Zappa? Yeah, I think mostly it was kind of going after. It was you know, so, so on one hand, I was getting interested in these contemporary music records. And, and um, on the other hand, I was discovering, you know, improvised music, you know. So early on, 
you know, I, I discovered Braxton's music, which、mm-hmm. in some ways fit into this interest because, in many ways, it's kind of this in between place, right? It's one of the, which is kind of what drew me eventually to work with him, is that it really is kind of taking all these very different influences that I think for his generation, he was quite unique in a way that he absorbed and, and synthesized these different totally. Know, Influences into a very unique voice, you know, and I was discovering, you know, Evan Parker and the European、mm-hmm. improvisers, you know, Zorn. And, you know, I started going to the knitting factory on Houston Street just, just to hear. From Princeton. Yeah, yeah. Just come in for the weekend to try to see, you know, I would see Zorn or Elias Sharp or, you know, what, basically what I didn't know who was who. And it was just whatever was happening at、yeah. the knitting factory or the knot room. And just to just. Absorb all these things I was interested in. Sounds like it was becoming kind of an obsession. I guess so, yeah. I guess, yeah, it was, it was becoming sort of an obsession. And、um, I started writing music.、Um, so, and then I started, I, so, so I wanted to play music. And so I started to play saxophone. So I, I, I didn't learn saxophone until probably my junior year in college. So, as a grown, as not a child, <laughs> your first acoustic instrument when you had like a genuine interest in music was the sax. Actually, in the beginning, was a B flat clarinet, which、oh, you might、worst. enjoy.、Um, because <laughs> my, my brother had played clarinet in band in middle school or、yeah. something. So there was a plastic clarinet at home. So when I went back to Taiwan one year,、um, I, I took his plastic clarinet, which was horrible, but it was there. So,、yeah. so, so I didn't have to go buy instruments. So I started playing、um, just kind of, you know, I probably got a method book from the library. You know, just so you, to, you took it from, let's start with the, the basic building blocks. Of yeah,、something. you just, you know, you look at the fingerings, you learn your, you know, like just figure out where the notes are. And,、yeah. and you know, And I think it's interesting learning an instrument when you're an adult and also not learning it properly you know, with a teacher. Yeah. Because, I mean, at that point, I was, you know,、um, I was already kind of studying scores, I was studying theory. So I had an understanding of, of the way music worked, but、mm-hmm. I wasn't trained. So, you know, so I didn't do my, like, I didn't start with like my Opperman exercises. Right.、Yeah. I mean, the B flat clarinet specifically, because it's a transposing instrument, I think if you approach it from the beginning without a teacher, as you're training your ear, it could be a little tricky. Well, yeah, that's the thing. So, because I never studied, started with a teacher, and also because I was mostly, I, I, you know, when I was learning the clarinet, I would just read, you know, I would like take the score of like Opus 21 to Webern, and I would just. Use, I would just read the parts, not transposing, not transposing, the playing attitude, <laughs>、uh, playing, you know. I mean, I was probably, was probably more into and squeaky than it was out of tune, right? right? I mean, it's actually, you know, it's not that hard to be in tune on a B flat for most part, you know,、uh-huh. but it's, you know, yeah.、Um, and so I play in C, you know,、yeah. I, I play everything in C, actually. I mean, that's my default. Mode, I, I read. Mine, mine too, actually. Yeah. So, so it doesn't really matter if I'm playing B flat, E flat clarinet, or soprano, or alto,、yeah. I read in C.、Um, so that comes from that. Because I, I never started like, playing in ensembles and orchestra or bands.、Yeah. So it was just like, well, I'm reading these scores. And if you're a composer, it makes more sense to just you know, not have to transpose the part. You just play it. I never. Whatever. <laughs> it, it's, it's, honestly, it's one of the great mysteries of life that I go back to all the time. Is、yeah. like, why transpose? Well, I mean, when, well, before when, you have, when, when the instruments were more out of tune and you had to have a C clarinet and、yeah. an A clarinet and an F clarinet just to be roughly to in play tune, parts, right. it made a lot of sense, you know. But, you know, I mean, Schoenberg has, I can't remember, I was very happy to be、um, kind of、um, 
affirmed by Schoenberg. He had, I think, he had an article where he said that you know, like, you're a composer, you, you like, it doesn't, if you're a real musician, you shouldn't like transpose. The transposition doesn't make any sense. He also says that if you if you don't, I remember he said that if you don't have perfect pitch, basically, you shouldn't be. You're not a real musician. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. <laughs> or something to that extent, you know. Um, but as and as this was happening, did you begin to see an interest in your uh, work at Princeton diminishing? No, I mean, I, I was, I was, you know, I mean, I didn't, I mean, I didn't go into music because I wasn't interested in, you know, computer engineering, um, but I became kind of more obsessed with music. So, I, yeah. I, you know, I finished my degree. Um, I think by my third year there, I was mostly done with my coursework. So, um, so the first, I started, the first class I took uh, was in computer music, um, uh-huh. which made sense because it was easy because I had a tech part. You know, so it was easy for me to go into it. And Paul Lansky, who taught at um, Princeton for a long time, uh, who was, you know, at that point uh, only doing computer music, he co-taught a class with Ken Stieglitz, who was in an EE department. So the the course was kind of half engineering, kind of hardcore DSP, and half, you know, making computer music. So Mm -hmm. talking about, you know, um, where Paul would talk about his process, um, um, so, so that was great. And, and so I did start doing computer music, um, uh, which at that point, especially at Princeton was still kind of non real time. So you would code on an X machine and, and depending on how complex the code was, it would take a while to churn out and then you, you, you would get your file. So, 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 brutal. <laughs> so, um, so partially we can talk about electronic music later maybe but you know i think in in some ways after sometime after college i kind of stopped doing computer music or electronic music for a while because i think that wasn't something i was quite interested in this kind of very um you know we were doing kind of algorithmic music where we would code and but that lacked of Direct interaction with the material, you know. Yeah, you sound. put a horn in your mouth. You're, yeah. you're going. And at this point, at this point, I was playing, you know, starting to play instruments, you know, saxophones. So, or so. Um, in any case, yeah. So I started studying music, you know, in class, you know, academically, if you will. Um, and started with computer music, and then in my last year there, I mostly, you know, studied music, which was which was lovely, and. The the you know the folks at Princeton were were really extremely generous, um, um, especially Steve Mackey, who was who was my main teacher there. Generous with giving you the time and yeah, giving me the time, to... and also I think they got a kick out of this this weird EE kid doing music, and um, so so you know I would be I mean just to give you a sense of how how wacky it was you know I was. You know, I was just starting, so I was studying theory on my own, and I took I was taking the intro theory class. Um, in the same semester, I was taking you know Steve's kind of composition seminar for senior music majors, which was great. Um, and at the same time, you know, he let me take Louis Andreessen's grad seminar. Oh wow! You know, he was at Princeton for a semester. So, so I was kind of taking a crack class, kind of upper level class and an intro class at the same time, um, which was amazing. Uh-huh. Um, so I was just kind of, you know, really kind of jumping into the deep end. And, you know, something that's kind of amazing, but also potentially dangerous, depending on who you talk to, about taking a serious interest in music as more of a grown person is you can sort of pick and choose what you feel is applicable to you mm-hmm. and what interests you. So, like, I didn't, I didn't get serious about music until I was... <clears throat> 
19 or something. And, you know, you mentioned Frank Zappa as a huge influence. To me, I I heard it and I was like, I don't think I really like that. I'll just, you know, go this other way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always wonder if like where my, like my blind spots are, mm-hmm. you know, like have I spent enough time with – you know, with, uh, you know, Warren Marsh, have I spent enough time, you know, with anything? And then, then I have to ask myself, like, does it matter? Yeah. Well, I think, I think the important thing is as, as you get more entrenched and as you establish your own aesthetics that you still are open in a way you might be more open when you're younger, you mm-hmm. know, where you didn't say like, well, I'm not interested in like Jandek, you know, mm-hmm. um, um, or whatever, <laughs> you know, that, that, that you would check it out. Um, and you would at least go in with a with the kind of attitude that I don't know whether I like this or not, you know. Which is uh, exciting, you know. Which is great. I mean, yeah, that was a lovely thing about getting into music, not in this kind of sequential matter, you know, and not in this kind of this this chronological way, right? And like here's the development of Western music, and you know, and and here's the history of jazz, and here's the, you know, this that you, it's kind of this you you approach it in this kind of like this weird non-linear network right and there are all these little points of references that you have just because it happened to be a cheap record you know mm-hmm. and, and that they like you know i got a the evan parker solo because it was used so i could buy it and mm-hmm. you know so that was the one i got and not because it was like the one i thought i should get that was recommended by you and know. then you put it on your world's yeah. never the same again yeah and then you put it on or you happen to get the odd the, the bad record whatever that may mean right you know, you, yeah and and then you, and then you know so it was kind of in some way there's a bit of a randomness to it um but i think it's always spotty right and 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 you know and i think that's what makes it interesting as long as you're still open to it and yeah. you, you still kind of will just go to a record store or, you know, and and say like, well, this somebody mentioned this thing or this was on the, this person was on this other record. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of interesting. That same logic. Which... Yeah. It's like, why don't I check it out? You know, and and maybe I don't know what I think about it, but like maybe it's interesting. You know, I wonder, you know, I was talking with I don't want to go too off topic. But I was talking with a, a younger person the other day, uh-huh. just marveling at how like what we learn in public schools in the United States growing up, like how different it might be now. And I was asking them if they were familiar with the Dewey Decimal System, which they weren't. They're not teaching that anymore. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder um, like how much, like you said something that I remember as a teenager realizing, oh, I like something. And it's, what's this record label called? It's called Impulse. Well, let right. me, I'll, I'll follow that clue, you know, right. and buy other Impulse records right. or however you, you piece together. Right. And I wonder how much of that like is tied directly to you know how they teach you to do research growing up yeah and and you know and it probably changes where you know your primary you know your primary source is is google and then that kind of search process is so accelerated right you so you know so now you you look something up you can get a get a clip of you know of warm marsh mm-hmm. right away and you you would get 50 clips of warm marsh yeah and so that's very different than like reading about somebody and going to a record store and like two months later you found a nice used copy of something mm-hmm. and it may or may not be like one of the quote-unquote good records and and you know so that's a very different interaction but also because like i remember like you know reading about machine gun and you couldn't get it right it was it it wasn't like a record you could go to like you know sam goodies or you know and and like ask for like machine gun right and and so 
So, so in your mind, you're already kind of imagining like what machine gun sounded like. Yeah, you know. And then when you finally got it, that one I should remember. Actually, I remember paying thirty dollars for, for machine vinyl? gun or no, CD. The CD. Jesus Christ! <laughs> it wasn't. You couldn't yeah. get it on vinyl then, right? I, uh, and that was one. I, I mean, you know, it's one of the records I couldn't. You know, it never comes up used, so I, you know, I had to order it. And it was thirty dollars. You know, when, and so you pay thirty dollars for machine gun. When you're a student, you're going to listen to it like, you know, 20 times in a row. It's right? funny that you say machine gun because, you know, I I have a special place in my heart for that record and for all of, you know, Broadsman's stuff. That record in particular, what I had heard about it, the the aura, the legend around it, when I finally got it, I was like, oh, this is machine gun. <laughs> right. Right. And there's that. Yeah. Right. And there's that. You go, oh, you know, I mean, and in some ways, maybe because you, you've, you've spent so much money on it and, and you've spent, you know, waited so long to hear it that you go, well, I, it, it's got to be good. It's gotta be, I'll just keep listening to it. <laughs> But, you know, I think that for better or worse, I don't, you know, it, it's very different than being a being somebody mentioning a machine gun and, and you go back home or or on, on your way to the subway, you put it up on your phone and there it is. Yeah. And you listen to three minutes of it, you go, okay, that's machine gun, you know. Um, that's just a very different way to discover music. You know, mm-hmm. I, don't th- I don't think it's necessarily better or worse, um, but it's it's, you know... It's different, right? Mm-hmm. And and the amount of information you can get is, you know, you can get a pretty complete, you know, spectrum, let's say Brussman's music or Evan Parker's music or anybody else's music fairly quickly, uh, which was not the case then, mm-hmm. you know. Um, for me, just thinking about, you know, it, like when I grew up in Taiwan, you, you, you weren't going to get Machine Gun. It just wasn't there, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember not, I remember reading about Jimi Hendrix and I couldn't get a Jimi Hendrix record. Right. You know, I mean, right. you, you read about it, you know, and you go and you kind of imagine what Hendrix must have sounded like, but you couldn't actually like, go out and buy a Jimi Hendrix record. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I imagine, you know, like like now you can hear everything, right? Just yeah. about. And, and that's great. That's great. You know, but it also has this kind of downfalls, if you will, um, um, in the sense that, you know, I don't think any, you know, people will get that record and whether they liked it or not, because they paid $30 for it, they're going to listen to it right. again and again and again and again, just because, you know. Um, so it's different. It is different. As you were... You know, taking the saxophone and the woodwinds more seriously. Mm-hmm. Did you feel? Um, did Did you feel like? Oh, I'm just going to focus on the music and the sounds that I need to focus on. Or did you feel like a a, a a need to really establish like fundamentals? Yeah, I think a little bit of both. A little bit of both. I think you know, and and I have to say, you know, in the big it in the beginning. I was just, and yeah, I, I think obsessed is a, is the kind of the right word for it. I think I was getting obsessed with it, which is why. I decided to, you know, say, oh, maybe I shouldn't be going to, you know, grad school in electrical engineering. Um, but, you know, so sometimes, you know, a lot of it would just be, I, w- I would try to play, and, you know, I got a soprano early on. So that was that mm. was kind of my main horn at first. And I would try to play like Evan Parker, you know. <laughs> it's a very tempting uh, thing <laughs> to do. Uh, you know, it didn't sound like Evan Parker. But, you know, I, I would try to, you know, so, you know, I would be like working on multiphonics. Yeah. You know, I would try to be doing, you know, doing glissandi and and doing, you know, extended techniques, whatever that is now. Um, but, you know, every, you know. Things that are, you know, outside of, say, traditional saxophone methods. But I was, you know, I was also kind of trying to, like, learn to play 
scales and and I never really did you know did my kind of like traditional method books you know until later mm-hmm. um, but I would you know a lot of what I would do I would I would take music I mean so basically I was kind of studying composition and scores at the same time so usually what I did was I would look at scores I was interested in I, w- I know I would read it on the saxophone I was just you know transpose it when it goes out of range So I would try to read like you know I would play like density, yeah. the res piece. I would just play that, learn, that try to learn that on saxophone, and you know just I would just basically both learn the saxophone and and kind of learn the score, yeah, like how you might sing through like the parts of a score when you're studying it, um, or like the Ruth Crawford oboe piece, and you know so. So that was that was kind of my way of like I guess learning say proper methods, sure, kind of, and also reading rhythm. So it was kind of all all tied into that. And did it help you sort of develop your own melodic language? I guess I guess you know I think I think I guess probably yeah. <laughs> But you know it was it was just trying to read as many different kinds of music I was interested in compositionally. You know so. Um, So I was really interested in the kind of the you know the American experimental like the early you know the Ives and you know Varese who I guess I think of as that kind of part of that American the Ruggles and yeah he was in New York yeah yeah I mean most of his music that you know now are, are from after he moved here um, um, the you know the kind of Viennese school you know I was interested in Babbitt. I got to know Babbitt. Um, yeah, yeah, which was lovely. Uh, I mean, he was you know he wasn't teaching at Princeton anymore, but he still lived in Princeton most of the time. He was teaching, I think, one day a week at Juilliard at that point. And I that. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he eventually he didn't retire from Juilliard until much later. He lost his apartment in New York. Um, uh-huh. And but it was really lovely. He was he was a really wonderful guy. Yeah, um, yeah. And I loved his music. So I was I was you know I was I was this kind of you know. Little fan student, and and whenever he, you know, so I would meet him after concerts in New York. We go to concerts in New York, and um, I got to know him. And whenever he saw me on campus or in, in town, he would kind of wave at me and say, "Like, take a walk with me, boy." You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I would kind of follow him around, and you What know, what would you guys talk about? I would just say, I would ask him about you know his you know. The history, I would like, you know, at that point I was interested in his early electronic music, you know, that he was doing on the RCA. Um, and um, he was disappointed that I wasn't interested in baseball. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> sometimes he would, he would ask me about, you know, recommendations for Chinese restaurants in, in New York, which is one of his things, you know. Uh, he kind of likes old school Chinese, American, like Chinese restaurants in New York. Like which is sour pork? Yeah, it's it's his. It's not my thing, you know. Right. But, but it's but it was great. It was just great. Um, he was he was really. I mean, he was extremely sharp, you know. Yeah. Um, what do you ask Milton Babbitt about in RCA? Like, what kind of question are you asking him? Oh, well, you know, at that point, I was so naive. You know, I I I was literally kind of reading about it. I got the record, uh-huh. you know, that that record on Columbia, and or or and also had ensembles for synthesizer. I would just ask him like how it worked, you know, how did he work on it, and, um, and you know, I I didn't really, I think I think you know I was just this enthusiastic kid, right? And he had patience so, for that. He was very he was very nice, and and um, you know, and I was just you know I was I remember I think. I think right around then I was looking at the Robert Morris book on his music, which is a really excellent introduction. But I wasn't like you know, I wasn't 
starting, I wasn't asking him about how he did the derived rows and his arrays and things like uh-huh. that, you know, which which I could un- understood much better later on. But it was just, it was just, I think, just being around him and and chatting and just about general things. That's um, the big thing, I think. Yeah, it was great. It was re- it was really lovely. Um, but in any case, so 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 you know, my interests were kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, it's like you know Braxton, Evan Parker, and Moulton Babbitt. You know, and. And so, um, so yeah, so those were kind of things I was tr- trying to read on the saxophone. Um, so I think that it, it, my, my instrumental background is very idiosyncratic, it's very, you know, spotty because of the way it developed. And I think it's, it's both good and bad. So I think the good part is, at least for me as a composer, performer, right, in some ways I think it's very nice that I don't have a lot of the baggage that mm-hmm. there I don't have arpeggios and patterns that are so built in that I kind of had to think about it to not whip it out. Right. Right. Um, but I also had, um, I think, bad habits from not having a teacher. You know, mm-hmm. I was playing saxophone with a double embouchure, which is kind of a weird thing. Uh, <laughs> and, and you know, I had, you know, some like bad habits that I, and later on when I was working on it, I go, oh, right, you know, this is, this is not the way to do it. Um, but you know, it, but the nice thing about it is, I think you, I end up developing pieces based partially because I was exploring the instrument, you know, as kind of a composer from the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that you know I've been playing saxophone for twenty years and all of a sudden they go, oh, you know, now I'm going to be an improviser, mm-hmm. or I'm going to be composing for you know the saxophone. So it was always kind of starting from this kind of compositional framework uh, in developing my techniques. So, yeah, and and then of course, like you know, I I went from you know college to doing music, you know, at, at Wesleyan, and I started working with Braxton. So, did you go to Wesleyan specifically because? Yeah, well, he for, was there for Braxton and Alvin Lucier. Yeah, um, you know who we just had our you know the the concert celebrating their Sonic Arts Union um, two nights ago. Um, so yeah, really for those two people, um, and uh, and it's it's such a great combination. That's oh, amazing. I mean, yeah, you know, of so so you know, so studying with Braxton, you know, so that was amazing, and and it really pushed me, uh, both you know, compositionally, but really as an instrumentalist, you know, my my, and and Braxton, one of the things I always admired about him, as, especially after our, you know, I started working with him, um, kind of in the long term was that he was always interested in new people, you know, and new that, people. Yeah, yeah. Young people who, you know, so, you know, in, in the traditional kind of, you know, the jazz model, if you will, you know, where it's about like who you play with. It's like, okay, you play with this person, so you're you're okay. And yeah, yeah, I might yeah. so so you might go up the hierarchy, you know. Um uh, so you know, maybe like if you have you've been in Wayne Shorter's band, like Miles might give you a call now, right, you know. Right, right, so, right. But I think one of the lovely things about him is, you know, I mean, he was working with a lot of students, but, you know, but doesn't have to be, even be his students. He, if he heard something interesting, he would check them out. And, um, and I think the scary thing is, you know, he, he, if he was interested in somebody, he would put them on a gig, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that's, that's how he really wants to see, like, is this person going to sink or swim? And, you know, how they do on the band. Yeah, stand it's not like, okay, we're going to rehearse this and let's huh. see. It's just like, okay, you know, here's this gig, you know, you you know, we're going to be here and let's, let's see what happens, you know. And so that's kind of what happened. My very first professional gig ever 
was at the North Sea Jazz Festival. Wait, you're, you're saying like you hadn't even played like a coffee shop somewhere? No, no, I have never, I never. I think I've only played, you know, at like the student center at Wesleyan at that point. Right. And it was, I think, it was the summer of '97, um, and my very first kind of, because you know, at that point, I've been doing music for three years, maybe. It's not three and a half. It's not very long. <laughs> And, you know, I wasn't very confident. Actually, I knew I wasn't very good as far as I was concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I knew what I had to do. You know, I could see where I wanted to go. I was very conscious of, of you know, my, my shortcomings. And, and This is 96, you said? Yeah, starting 96. This so he was is, doing the ghost trance stuff? Yeah, he was doing the ghost trance music. Okay. Yeah. So my very first professional gig anywhere was at the North Sea Jazz Festival, which is a zoo, you know. Yeah, it's uh, also one of the biggest jazz festivals. It's, it's in the one world. of the biggest jazz festivals in the world, and it all happens in three days. I think there's 15 concurrent concerts. Yeah, and it, and he's saying it was in the Hague at the time. Um, and in our venue before us was ICP. So oh, you know, so it's my first gig. I was backstage with Han, with oh, Misha, you know, with Tristan Holmes. You know, it's just like it was just completely crazy, and um, and. And you kind of, you know, you had to deliver, you know, and and I think it was it, when I think back now, it's 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 that kind of uh, I think genuine interest in somebody who I think, you know, I think he's very well aware of my shortcomings, but he he saw something that was interesting in the way I played and also in the way that I was directing ensembles that he wanted to like give me a shot and see see what happens. Yeah, and and thinking back, I think it's it's really remarkable. Um, and you know, and for me, it was just the completely the, the, it was the craziest moment, you know. Uh huh. What do, if you had to, you know, suspect what you think Braxton was looking at that he said, "Okay, I'll take this over to, to the Hague with me." What What do you think it was that he was interested in? Well, I think at that point, um, it was actually interesting. At that point, you know, he was beginning to you know develop you know ghost trance music. I don't know. People might not be familiar. Is when it started, it was this very long melody and mm-hmm. a very steady pulse that that almost felt endless. Mm-hmm. Right? Even though the early performances tended to be, you know, broke up in maybe fifteen minute pieces, but it's this long stream with you know, and where there are little you know um, bursts of improvisation. But it's kind of this trance state, right? And when I started working with him in '96. He was starting to think about breaking up the on- in some ways opening up in the beginning it really was kind of this very hypnotic and um almost monolithic you know activity mm-hmm. right you felt like it's kind of just this constantly permeating melody that there's no beginning and there's no end, and it wasn't really about variation or complexity it was really more about this kind of trance state and he was i think progressing and changing it so we started experimenting at wesleyan with breaking up ensembles into three so there were instead of one group there will be three groups and that you know you could play together all at once or they can play the different parts of the score at different tempi right so you will have three different versions of the same piece going at different tempi or one group might be improvising or be playing a completely different piece of his right um, so this became kind of standard, became 
developed more and more as I worked with him. But in the beginning, this was just when he's starting to open things up. And so we started experimenting at Wesleyan and did a concert where we had kind of an ensemble where we, we were not doing much improvisation, uh, even though it wasn't really about not doing it, but really experimenting with this kind of simultaneity and where the different groups had autonomy. So Braxton would be directing one, I would direct one, and Jackson Moore would direct another one. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was probably what kind of what interested him because I think he saw that I think that he could trust me to make decisions that both I wouldn't I would make my own decisions and try to you know interpret it in different ways but I had a I think Jackson and I both had a good sense of how to direct things and to not you know play all the time to 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 change tempi to to make interesting composition you know you're kind of he would talk about navigation through form this idea that it's it's not it's kind of you're you're approaching it just directing an ensemble like an improvisation yeah right? but with a kind of compositional mindset so i think that's probably what interested him uh and because in the group that we were touring with it that became the practice where it was a nine piece or a ten piece where we split it up into three groups right so you know each person can always go out on their own and play a separate piece or come back to the trio or the trio can form sextets or you know who was in that group um i'm trying to remember and so in the beginning it was myself jackson moore Andre Vita, Brandon Evans, um, Anthony, uh, Kevin O'Neill on guitar, Joe Fonda on bass, Kevin Norton on drums, J.D. Perrin. Uh -huh. um, and that kind of morphed. Um, it was it was a very sax saxophone-heavy band. Yeah. Uh, and then later on, um, it would change. Um, you know, I think at some point Steve Lehman was on there and um, Jackson and I and Chris Jonas, Brian Glick, Seth Mesterka at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it, would, it would change. and But then, you know, we were doing interesting projects like, you know, um, there was one project we did in Slovenia that's, that's actually, that's out on Leo Records where Jackson, Anthony and I and Chris Jonas, we would direct um, a string orchestra you know, mm. so the, again, the string orchestra will be split into three. So we were kind of translating these approaches, and you can kind of see he was experimenting. He was changing the format and thinking about different strategies to work. Um, so that was interesting. Mm -hmm. But but coming back to Norsey, yeah, that was that was really you know. So that in some ways, <laughs> that was the gig. And and I think that the wonderful thing about Braxton, in in terms of you know, my my saxophone playing, you know, is I think that. When someone like that, who you admire so much, who himself is a, I would say, extreme virtuoso on an instrument, mm -hmm. you know, when they kind of say, okay, like, I think you can do this, and here's the date, you know, <laughs> and show up at the airport, and we're, we're, go we're going to go, well, it's actually, it's a little bit of confidence, but I think for me, it was just, you know, utter terror, um, because I don't want to let them down, you know, or sure. or I was very conscious that I wasn't where I wanted to be as an instrumentalist myself. Um, but I've seen this over and over again, you know, and sometimes it, you know, it doesn't work. But I think oftentimes the remarkable thing is, you know, you'll be playing sometimes very, very difficult music, yeah. you know, very complex rhythms uh, and sometimes a lot of notes. And I think sometimes you will see... Th 
people who you know start at a, a level of technique that if you're a traditional teacher you would say well there's there's no possible way that you'll be able to play this page's music like in two months right <laughs> just because because like you know, not not because that I, you know sure i think you're stupid but just because like this is not how it works yeah right we, we're gonna have to find some some more reasonable goals in between and you learn how to count these rhythms yeah you learn you know you learn how to play these like you know fast passages and you know and then we build up to this crazy thing and i think with braxton somehow he throws you in a deep end and you're so kind of both frightened and excited but you're also driven because he's giving you distrust yeah that i've seen again and again that people with some you know they if they put their mind to it they can play very difficult music if you know it's not going to be like the ensemble modern but if they can do things that you wouldn't have thought was possible in that frame of time <laughs> yeah i mean braxton you know I've, I've met him we've said hi before i don't know we don't know each other but he's always struck me as like you know, he his, the charisma of Braxton and what he brings to the experience and what he brings out of people in the experience is very much based on this sort of creating like a personal momentum mm -hmm. where people are excited. And that to me is like it's it's one of those things that is is key to his music. And it's one of those things you just can't recreate no matter what you write, no matter what you play. That's part of what the experience is. Yeah. And I think that 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 degree of trust and, you know, and he's listening and he'll know yeah. if you're not delivering or if you've not kind of, you know, reached, you know, a little ahead and, and pushed yourself, you know, but he'll give you that chance. He'll want to see that. Can you push yourself? And yeah, I mean, we, 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 I don't want to talk about this for too long, but I feel like whenever I've played with someone who I admire. There's this little devil somewhere in my, you know, in my ear that's like, when I'm playing, they'll be like, remember, this guy's played with Leo Smith for years. So just, you know, just, just know he knows what it's like to play with real people. <laughs> it, it's like, it's, it's one of the many devils that, you sure. know, circles me while I'm playing. Sure. Yeah. 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 Well, um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, you know, especially if it's somebody who's, you know, records you've listened to and you're, yeah. you know, and, but I think, you know, it's. It's. It was always important for him that a. I think he never wants people to copy him, right? Um, and also, it was always a matter of there was you know there was always a combination of you know just playing, but also it's also always about ideas that he's trying out. So you know compositional strategies, and so you know so it's not just about. Especially at that point, you know, it wasn't about like, okay, let's make sure like we play this head, like we rehearse this head like 500 times so it's super sharp, mm -hmm. you know. There is that. Um, there's a lot of difficult like notated music to to try to, you know, um, master. Uh, but it was also so much about like, you know, the approach and like how do we like experiment trying something new every night you know and so so that was nice it wasn't just about like okay like make sure like you really have your solo together and you want to show that you're a great player it was yeah. like okay sometimes it's just about making interesting choices uh in the way that you start and stop and play music or play something very very soft so nobody can hear you and it emerges when everybody stops you know so it's, it's also about strategy um uh, so i think so that you know, made it interesting too. So it's not just about like you know, I want to be a amazing saxophonist, and I'm gonna make sure I, I have my great solo in. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really about that. Um, 
but it certainly I think pushed me to um, get my you know chops together in a way that I think I wouldn't have uh, in that kind of speed mm-hmm. uh, and I would say desperation. Sure, uh, it's a big part of it. <laughs> then you know if I didn't have that push early on. Well, but but going back to something you said earlier, you said that um, at, back at Princeton, computer music kind of you lost interest because of the amount of distance between the immediate you know the you the player and mm-hmm. and the outcome from the instrument mm-hmm. was it beginning to reemerge as an interest yeah yeah i think you know i mean it's i mean i was interested in computer music i mean i think partially just because i had a i had a lot of skills on the technical side so it was sure. easy for me to um kind of get deep into programming um and for was music. it i mean were you able to have an intuition based on your your technical uh background to the music itself i mean electronic music is not you don't just pick it up and start doing it even a violin is more simple in that way well it depends right i mean you you i mean i mean writing code for computer music probably yeah there's there's a you know at least you know in the kind of traditional model that we were you know that we were doing you know um there was more steep learning curve and you know and there wasn't you know there wasn't a github where people had their all examples of their codes mm-hmm. that you can cut and paste together so you were learning you know how to you know um how to do phase vocoding and you would write it and it's like and banging rocks together to get a spark. sort of you know it was good education but i yeah but i think that that i think Part probably, you know, because I mean, there's a couple of things that I think drew me away from it initially. I think one is being interested in in writing for musicians, and I, and for one, I think because I had a lot of background in computer, you know, and programming and hardware, and I had, I was very aware that I didn't have enough knowledge about music theory and composition. So I really wanted to focus on that just to develop my, you know, skills. So, so that kind of moved me away from doing computer music, um, and also that 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 delay, um, you know, that lack of direct interaction with sound. Um, and I was also becoming, you know, th- and the turning point maybe was was, um, and I was already becoming interested in Cage, of course, and and the kind of experimental music tradition, if you will, uh, of at least that kind of I was think almost think of now as this classical experimental yeah. music tradition um, yeah, yeah. which you know I don't think is where we are now um, and and discovering the music of David Tudor was was really important for me I heard um, David Tudor I used to go to the city center where um, the Cunningham company I think they used I think they used to do two seasons a year okay. at the city center and I, I would mostly go to shows based on the the music, you know, so I would look up what music was was paired to the dances for each night. Sure. And I, I would go to the ones that that I really wanted to hear, um, and I got to see Sound Dance, which had tone bursts for a soundtrack, or, or or music rather, and and that was that was when Tudor was still in the pit, and and it, it I think you know that 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 night you know hearing Tudor really changed my life. This is actually kind of a, a an interesting story, at least yeah. for me. So, so you know, so I don't know if you're familiar with Tudor's work. I mean, know. not super deep, uh-huh. but I'm certain, yeah. Yeah, but, so there, there are a couple of things that really, A, it was just the, the, the experience of, of the sound. I mean, he was notoriously loud. Yeah. Uh, and tone bursts is probably the most vicious and kind of 
physical and just incredible piece. You know, it's all mostly done with feedback, um, amplification, and phase shifting. And it's one of his few pieces that didn't involve pre-recorded material. Because usually he would use a system and he would generate material, put it on tape. So in performance, there's a combination of live electronics, mostly done with some degree or large degree of feedback and pre-recorded material. Mm -hmm. um, and Tone Burst is, is the kind of, I, I always think of it as the pure piece. It's live. Pure piece, yeah. It's live and you always had the danger of things not working. And you're really, you know, um, walking a thin line when you're performing it. And you can kind of, you can hear that in a performance. Sometimes it will flatline and, and, you know, sometimes you have to pull the system just to get it back oscillating again. But it was a really physical experience listening to that piece. And that got me interested, I think... I mean, I was interested, I was listening to cartridge music, you know, and, you know, Alvin's music and, and all these different things. And, and I think, but that, that experience of, of tone burst made me want to go back into electronics, but analog electronics. Um, and that, I think that was a drive back to doing analog electronics. Um, and so a couple of things, A, analog electronics and feedback became something I was really interested in. Still, a lot of the, what I do in live electronic music um and this this feeling of liveness mm -hmm. you know was became very important to me or very interesting to me um i became you know i became not so interested in making music on tape that is just, you know that is you make a piece that's only goes to tape that gets performed by playing the tape or you just make it for cd mm -hmm. right um or mp3 at this point mm -hmm. yeah and so this idea of negotiating with electronics live and dealing with things that may or may not go well, that you actually have to, you know, you can play it. There's some degree of control, but there's elements that, that are somewhat beyond your control. The I mean, electronics has its own behavior yeah. of sorts. Yeah, 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 That became central. The so, room itself changes that. The room itself changes, yeah. the speaker, the, you know... Um, Electricity. So for me, like, you know, for a long time, the tone burst was this kind of, in my mind, this, my, you know, this model of liveness. You know, it's like, that's what live electronics sounds like. And, and the, the kind of ironic thing is much later on, as I got to know people um, around the Cunningham company, um, that I found out that in all likelihood, that performance I saw, that I heard, um, it was you know he was his health was deteriorating at that point. Um, he was still performing, but his health wasn't as good. So later on, when he was doing tone bursts, he was mostly mixing cassettes. Huh. <laughs> so cassettes, recordings of tone bursts. Oh, tone bursts, yeah. But it's very possible that this piece or this experience I had that you know really changed my life and and really instilled in me this idea that. You know, this music had to be done live. Uh -huh. Was probably just him mi mixing cassette tapes. Um, <laughs> so I always thought that was that was that was kind of funny. Um, but in any case, it set me on my course for better or worse um, to to think about doing live. Like so again. Um, so when I got back into electronic, you know, um, Max MSP was pot, was was out, and um, I got you know, so I got back into doing some computer music. And it was much more interesting to me to be able to do things live. Well, I mean, the thing with computer music, 
you know, that is exciting, but also to me just sort of frustrating and annoying is that um, it's never really in a fixed position. I mean, the fundamentals of, you know, coding are there, but computer music being made in 1996 versus computer music being made in 2018 is a completely different um, approach. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's much more accessible to people now. Uh It's still kind of this mysterious thing that Uh you chase. That's where with... You know, analog electronics, it's like, I feel as a performer, you can say, okay, this is, you know, this is a fixed set of materials that there's still an endless amount of, of, of uh, you know, expressivity at, mm-hmm. my, at my fingertips, but, okay, let's, let's work with this finite set of materials. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? What, are you talking about just that, are you just talking about the limitation of the material, or the, the limi- fact that the, the material, the, the, that the, the resources are still developing you know well i'm talking about both and Uh i'm also talking about you know how what's available technologically meshes with a person's personal aesthetic Uh i I, you know i I don't mean to 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 shit on anything in this way but like would voyager if it was composed in 2018 sound like that recording of it from the 90s like Uh it, it wouldn't uh-huh. I have to believe it wouldn't. It's, well, it's time-stamped, you know? Hard to say. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a very... I think that's a very unique example. Uh, that's probably not like a lot of, like, say, the rest of electronic music history. Um, I mean, would I Kraftwerk mean, sound like Kraftwerk if they were, you know... Yeah, probably not. Uh, I mean, Voyager is interesting because I think for George, you know, at least my reading of it... Um, is at that point he was most interested in the way that the computer was parsing the improvisation, mm-hmm. right? He was interested in the decision making process um, rather than the sounds that were that was being played by the computer. He was interested in like how the computer could read a improvisation, sure. how to how much data you could, you know, you need your was required to parse it and to make meaningful decisions like an improviser. And I think he was the sound, at least my impression at that point, the sound was like the thing he was least concerned sure. about. Um, and I'm sure it would change, but I'm not sure how much that would change. But yeah, I mean, you know, the, but I don't know if. I think, you know, I mean, in, in, in teaching, I think, you know, the danger of computer music is, yes, I mean, things are constantly changing. I think that's, you know, it's hard to see that as a bad thing. Sure. Uh, but I think the danger, of course, is you, you're, you're, you're always seduced by the newest technology. So, you know, if you go to like an academic computer music conference, which I don't rec- recommend, um, <laughs> you kind of hear, you know, if you, if you listen to, you know, like, a, you know, a computer music conference from 2004 or 2007, you know... What year that was from? Just by hearing not the just, examples, you know, yeah, and not not just because you know, it's just because everybody's doing a certain technique and they don't tend to hold up well as a piece of music, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's not really the fault of the technique, right? It's not because you know it, you can't make interesting music with granular synthesis, uh, but it happens that you have a lot of very generic pieces done in very I, I similar ways in any musical tradition that's also true, true. you know you, we all know the greats you know we know yeah. bartok and his string quartets but you know any number of string quartets that were happening at that time and since then in sort of response to it like 
we that we don't even know about because they just kind of got burned off. Right. Well, I mean, the, like the string quartet or the piano, it's you know, it's you you have the problem is you have this weight of history. Yes. Right. And so it could be very difficult to to either step away from that history or not be burdened by it. Um, but on the other hand, you are kind of forced to come up with something new, right? You're you're very conscious of the string quartet repertoire of your composer, right? You've studied them, yeah. you listen to them. And um and you know, in some ways you can say possibly analog electronics might have a similar you know, it's it's a much more recent we're talking about a fifty, sixty year history uh-huh. rather than, you know, hundreds of years. Um but yeah, I mean you have some somebody like Elian Radig, you know, who, you know, works with for many, many years, for decades on just one instrument. Yeah. Right. And with a very particular aesthetic. And and so in some ways I think yeah, we're you know you're not going to be the first person to do a Moog, you know, low pass filter sweep, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're going to use that thing, you better have something to say, right? Well, um, there's something interesting to me, and it's something my friend describes as a questionable aesthetic device, mm-hmm. which is you know once things become codified, mm-hmm. uh, and there's you know like a, a a cultural understanding of what it is, but then also like a pedag- pedagogical uh uh you know yes and no attitude towards mm-hmm. it so for instance you know if you're learning the clarinet vibrato is not you know looked at very kindly you know mm-hmm. you need to not be in the habit of playing with vibrato if you're talking about electronic music a digital cowbell kind of means something specifically uh-huh. uh, a chorus pedal on a bass yeah. you know kind of immediately takes you to like the 80s listening to the cure mm-hmm. you know taking these like these things and then figuring out a way to do something with it you know inevitably you'll hear it and immediately you'll have a reaction of like nope that, no no that's wrong that shouldn't be happening well i think you know it's i think any i mean it's like it's exciting to me it it still happens right? i mean it's like you know i mean we have it's like if i hear a, you know a bass clarinet piece with a like low c slap tongue you know i kind of want to kill myself yep um but it's still happening um you know or, you know it's kind of like you know excessive jet whistles on like solo flute pieces um <laughs> you know we it's still it's still there i mean and i think you can still make pieces that sure. have, you know that are interesting that have jet whistles um you know, or the pop tongue like bass flute. It's it's you know, it's so in the same way that you, we have our cliches. You know, um, I think with instruments with longer histories, we're probably just more aware of those cliches um, because it's it's definitely not anything new. And whereas maybe with computer music, because all these techniques are still evolving, you 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 sometimes maybe as a younger composer, you you feel that just by incorporating a certain sound or technique that you're doing something interesting. Right. right. Where maybe compositionally there's not much there. And that might be harder to see. Uh, but then again, you know, it's not stopping from people from writing bass clarinet pieces with slap tongue low Cs, you know. So <laughs> so maybe it's not that different after all, you know. As you began to sort of... Uh take an interest again in, in electronic music mm-hmm. or analog electronic music more mm-hmm. specifically, did that happen concurrently with uh, an interest in, in engineering? And No, and- no, not really. I mean, it's, it's come in handy, you know, but, but really in some ways, you know, I mean, it's, it's almost backwards because, you know, in, in, I mean, in most electrical engineering programs, I would imagine these days, so especially. I mean, uh, record engineering. Oh, recording engineering. Yeah. yeah I think that, well, actually, that developed, 
I think very early on. I think part of it's just I, I was interested in just the technical side of it. Sure. You know, I think I think I think a lot of us, you know, like musician and like recording engineers, I think a lot of us were just fascinated by records and the way they sounded. Yeah. And you, you know, you wanted to know like why like the Van Gelder records sounded the way they did and the contemporary records sounded like that. Deutsch gramophone and on. Yeah. Like, and also just, I think just the magic of being able to record, Uh uh, uh, make a record that has that, that sounded, you know, in a particular way or just sounded good to you. Mm. Uh, Like the Mercury Living Presence records were just incredible. Right. And, and so I think part of it was just interest. And I think in the beginning, Part of it was out of necessity. I mean, I think, you know, I, so I started, you know, because I started getting interested in composition, um, I was very conscious that um, new music doesn't get performed a lot, <laughs> 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 to put it as an understatement. Uh, you know, but I think I, was, I, I understood that, A, you know, if you wanted to write music, it wasn't going to get performed a lot, so you better record it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in the begin- from the beginning, I was mostly interested in writing for specific ensembles that are typically non-standard, you know. So it wasn't going to be a piece that was going to be played by a string quartet multiple times. They, they were oftentimes ensembles that I had to put together. I had to, you know, save some money to hire musicians yeah, so yeah, them yeah. to play my piece. And, and, and I wasn't going to hear it again, you know. Um, so I better record it. So in the beginning... Um, there's that and just like, uh, you know, that it probably was good to just invest in some equipment so that I don't have to hire somebody to record it. I would just record myself. Mm -hmm. And also a lot of it was because I was getting interested in, it was improvising and I was always interested in recording improvisations. I think for me, especially not coming from a typical trajectory where, you know, you started improvising and then you got better and better and you were improvising with different people. I was kind of starting, you know, in, you know, and trying to make it work very as, as quickly as possible. I wanted to hear it and to analyze it, not, you know, just to figure out, oh, you know, to re- go through those decisions and think mm-hmm. about, okay, what was I doing? Was that terrible? And, you know, how would I do it differently so I could learn from it and also just have a documentation mm-hmm. just because I think, like I said earlier, in my entrance into music was through records. So in some ways, to me, it was really the recording was always very important as a document. So so I got interested first just to record my own music. And I think a very practical thing, you know, getting into recording engineering was a very practical thing in that I needed equipment. And... That costs money. Costs a lot of money. So, um, so the 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 way to do that is to record other people's music, so that I could afford, mm-hmm. so I can recoup the money to buy the equipment. Um, so in the beginning, it was mostly doing stereo to two track. You know, dats. Um, it was still everything was still on dats for a while, and um, so in the beginning, I was just recording a lot of. Um, ensembles friends ensembles mostly so and basically anybody who needed a, a concert recorded i would say yes um and i would do it for free mm-hmm. um for a long time just to hone my chops. build up that experience and and yeah. you know and so so mostly i was doing location recording um and so so i think it's it was about getting quick you know location recording is about fast uh, you know like you're you're recording 
somebody's second set at tonic. Yeah. Right. You have 10, 10 minutes, minutes. 10 minutes to get it together, right? To set up with no sound check. And right. It's got to sound good. Right. Or, or as good as you can get it, right? And that's a very different skill than somebody who's working on a snare sound for five hours, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, you learn to be fast. You learn to record different kinds of music in oftentimes non-ideal recording right. spaces. Like a violin at tonic. Yeah. 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 You know, um, and so a lot of it was, you know, wasn't things that would work if you just read a Tomeister book because it's like, okay, you're in this beautiful hall. You have a string quartet that you can move around on the on the on the stage, and you know, and this is like okay, you know, like you know, I have a drum and like a bass amp behind it, and the saxophonist is on the floor in front of the stage, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So, so, so that's that's kind of kind of how how it evolved. It was doing, um, it was acquiring kind of equipment to to record my own music, and it became more of a you know also kind of a part time freelance job Mm -hmm. more and more. Um, which I enjoyed doing, um, and and you know so it's going from that to eventually you can actually take a laptop out with you and record multi-track, uh, and but it was mostly doing location sound, uh, location recording, and um, I was also doing some live sound um, for contemporary music ensembles and doing like studio dates sometimes, as, mm-hmm. you know, as a freelance engineer. Doing did you? I mean, how early on as a composer did you begin to put together? the sonic possibilities of the way the recordings presented and how they could accentuate or or add to what the compositional idea was um mixed strategies and it's hard to say i think i think i think it's hard to say i think very early on i was very conscious about the recording yeah. like you know because i think because my entrance to music was through recording like for example like it's still I just think, you know, I mean, Steve Rice used to talk about this, but I think for our generation or, you know, it's it's much more heightened than most of our, even though I used to, and I still go to concerts, you know, but I used to go to a lot, I think a lot of concerts, right? And But I think most of the music, even then by a large percent that we experience is through recordings yeah. right? by a long stretch. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. go out, you know, just about every day, you know, to go to concerts. Um, so... For example, I remember starting to go to contemporary music concert, and it will always bug me when people like a string quartet would pause in between movements of like a string quartet, mm-hmm. right? And they would shuffle scores, and everybody will get their coughs out because mm-hmm. in my mind, like like on the record, that doesn't happen. It just, it just went to the, and and to, to me that was how the piece flowed, mm-hmm. and that suspense was important, mm-hmm. and it was very different than than having this pause and and you know and you know that that so but that's 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 the case for someone who's used to listening to recordings you know um and music on recordings right and so so i was very conscious about like how music in some ways like for example in my alto quartet when we had these pauses i the the performers stay in performance mm-hmm. there's no cue as to when it begins again there's no shuffling of the score pages during ago, pauses Zorn telling me that like when he was getting masada together he didn't realize as a young person that you know he was listening to jazz records his favorite jazz records were live records and he didn't realize that the space between pieces was edited yeah, so yeah. he put together a band Play, that would play that way, which yeah, yeah. is you know thirty seconds between pieces. You know, you start playing before the applause dies down. Yeah, yeah. You know, which is you know, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I remember seeing 
the I think it was like I don't know how many different configurations he did of Masada no, dozens before the final one but I remember seeing a couple nights at CB's gallery where oh. it was I think there were three sets or two sets a night where each group was different yeah. you know he was kind of trying different combinations which is but I think yeah I mean obviously for him he's a record freak and I think I think coming from recording you have a different approach to both like the way you want to perform your music live that's heavily informed by how music is presented on record, right? Well, it's, it's constantly tricky. Because I'll go to, you know, a concert at Miller Theater and inevitably walk away frustrated and disappointed because the room just lacks intensity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll hear a violin piece and, the, you know, I'm like, that, all the power's lost. Like, yeah. the sound guy should have cranked it. Well, I want to feel like it's crushing. That's a sound quality piece, you know. But also, there, you know, for example, like listening to a four-hour Feldman piece, oh. right? I think... In some ways, it's it's kind of inc- it, you can say that well, almost the ideal way to hear it is at home because you can literally be in absolutely quiet space, mm. be comfortable, and listen to four hours without somebody coughing or people coming and going, right? Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there's something wonderful about the tension mm-hmm. um, of long duration and the the tension of the crowd and this. You know, and feeling the duration in a much more vivid way, um, because you have the, all these moment-to-moment activities. You know, of people getting restless and or people going just to go to the bathroom or whatever. So in some ways, they're they're both valid and they're both interesting, but it's very different. You know, I mean, for me, like of course, like you know, most I've I've listened to Philip Gustin for Philip Gustin Live, which is one of my favorite. But I've listened to recording probably you know it's like a really 20, long piece twenty times, whereas and you heard it once, so. It my experience is definitely more informed by being able to listen to it all in one go and in a quiet space. Yeah, um, it's. But to come back to to the point about recording, I think oftentimes you know I think when I record, it's it's not um, there's not always a um, explicit way like attempt to try to present the music in a different way than. Um, than they ha- how they happen, you know, in space. Although I don't necessarily try to say be accurate to the space. I don't really sure. care about that. Sure, sure. Um, you know, um, but you know, but one I think one good example of something that's really specific to the recording process is a project um, that have this long ongoing duo with Kato Hideki. Yeah, um, and we made a record called Sivs, um, and we're both recording engineers, you know, so, so I think, so when we got together, we were playing live and when we start thinking about making a record, you know, it was, it was important for us that it wasn't just a, a recording of, we play a recorded, find the good takes mm-hmm. and put it together and that was it. Right. So, so we devised this method where we just played, um, we recorded in multi-track. We, we, we recorded the speakers, which is very important for me in live electronic music. Recording the speakers. Yeah, recording the speakers and the room sounds so that you capture the, the, the way that, you know, the speakers change the sound, which mm-hmm. is always very important to me. Um, and then we did a... Um, I'm trying to think. Then we did a session. Which one came first? Then we did a session where we mixed it but what 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 we did was you know we, we would just run the multi track you know uh, and all all of these things that he was playing would be on my mixer, and all of the stuff I was playing would be on his mixer <laughs> right 
And we would just kind of blind, I mean, we would play it, but we didn't, we wouldn't look at the screen to see what was coming up. And we would just play it like an instrument. So we wouldn't necessarily be mixed. We would, so we would just randomly mute tracks, uh-huh. radically play things, basically add tremolo to it with a fader or yeah, anything, yeah, yeah. and do analog processing at the same time. So for this, he was mostly playing electric bass and a fedback electroharmonic bass synthesizer, and I was playing analog electronics, mostly Buchla modules. Um, so we would add frequency shifting to it during the mix, uh, but it was this kind of very... I mean, that's just, a process that could just go on and on and on. Yeah, but we would just do one pass. Yeah. So it was it was one pass, and we would kind of listen to the track in a sense of where we want, but, you know, he had control. He was mixing my material, and I was I was doing his. So, you know, so there was this kind of cross-modulation going on. And then we did another session with that material, so it was kind of that layer, <laughs> Where we went into a stairwell uh-huh. that was really a concrete, it was a tile and concrete stairwell that was really a beautiful echo chamber, and so we did it like we so we put a speaker in it with mics on different floors of the of the stairwell, um, and we did the same process of kind of live mixing for their echo for the reverberation, and then that got slapped back together with the dry sound, and that was the record, you know. Yeah. So for me, it was trying to make the recording process performative right so it's not just about enhancing sound or making a sound like the real sound you know like you will hear acoustically or making a sound better than real sound but to actually make the recording process trying to look at the recording process and say well how can we actually make this compositional or performative mm-hmm. right and and to kind of put it into layers and so that it was you know removing in some ways removing yourself from total control so that I couldn't like shape the way I wanted to, you know, make my sounds, and he couldn't do it with his, um, and that you know, and probably some great material was muted, you know, <laughs> but it wasn't really about that. It was right. it, it was, was about, about those accidents, about those live, you know, playing with the material, and of course, like we still edit or pick the good, the takes that we like in sequence, but it was about yeah, let's accept what happens. So in some ways, there is this kind of Cajun indeterminacy, and like let's accept. Let's define a process, let's improvise and play it, but we're going to kind of accept what happens. I'm not going to go back and say, well, you know, like you muted this great thing I did mm-hmm. at 3.23 and let's, let's go back and like, can I put that back in? It wasn't right. about that. It was yeah. acceptance. Yeah, it was acceptance. Has your recorded output slowed down since... Quite a bit. I, actually, moving to Oakland? Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually in process. I have this long backlog of recordings that, that I'm actually working on now. So hopefully... yeah. Hopefully we'll see more of it. Are you going to kind of put it out all in one swath? No, no, it'll come it'll come out, you know, hopefully in a, in a in a nice steady trickle. Are you going to um, be because you have your own label mm-hmm. and it, it, that's going to be the outlet organized? That's going to be the outlet. I think it's it's there's just something nice about being able to go at your own pace. Yeah. And and to have a steady uh stream and also to not worry about which records get picked up. And which records? I think part of what slowed down, you know, is a people stopped. There was there was a real lull in, mm-hmm. in kind of new music, and my I think the problem with my music too um, is that it's kind of all over the place in terms of quote unquote market. Mm-hmm. You know? So so you know, there's a there's one of the records I'm preparing is is mostly kind of chamber works. It's you know two pieces, one two violin electronics, two saxophone electronics, and a chamber piece and an orchestra piece. And then there's another one with Kato that's just all electronics. Yeah, you know, 
um, there's a record with Sean Meehan that's very, very minimal. Yeah. Um, it's very quiet. And, you know, they, they, so some of them have people who are interested, but, but no, but, you know, it, it was going to be very spotty. And I think the nice thing about doing yourself is at least you can decide what you wanted to put yeah. out and, and you know and that you can, can contextualize out. right you can you know have make sure you know I, I think like especially for someone who you know does everything from you know acoustic music to mm-hmm. being a performer in the group and electronic yeah. music like you do have to make a concerted effort to sort of present that kaleidoscope mm-hmm. because these things i have to assume for you as they are with that they're they're all related and yeah. you can better understand the electronic music through the the saxophone improvisations and you know yeah, I don't know how much, you know, I mean, I'm not too concerned about making connections. Certainly there, I mean, there's some connections that are more explicit than others. Sure. Um, but, you know, um, but I'm, you know, like, like, like Braxton, you know, he, he really has a cosmology where, where his entire, his entire work kind of fits into this very complex it's a, it's a system. It's a, the system you can say is extremely ex- inclusive, right? Mm-hmm. But for me, it's not. You know, it's very different. That you know, I don't really. I'm not concerned with some system that where my you know solo saxophone music has to relate, and some of them do. Um, but it's not. It's not how I want or need people to hear it. You sure. know, I mean, I think if they see you know they don't see any connection and just don't get the electronic music at all when they you know like the alto quartets that's fine right you know and i don't really i don't need really need this clean line of connection between all these different outputs and sometimes some of them are just completely on their own you know yeah. they they don't really connect conceptually or compositionally or aesthetically to others and or sometimes maybe i don't even see the connections until much later and go oh right actually i i see why these things are related but it's not terribly important to me that there's this conceptual framework that connects everything yeah yeah all right yeah i think we did a good job today man Mm -hmm. this is really good all right thank you for coming over and talking james sure my pleasure All right, that was James Fay. I hope that was okay. Did you guys enjoy that? He's a good cat, James. And if you want to find out more about him, go to jamesfay.com. He's got a lot of stuff up there. Check it all out. If you're enjoying the show, go to the 5049 website and, uh, and check in. And uh, come out August 15th. We'll be at Arate, me and Ben Goldberg. It'll be fun. And that's it. Hope you guys are all doing well. We'll be back next week with Zena Parkins. All right. Bye.